We become like what we worship. We're in the last week of a series called Idolize. And if you're like me before this series, you might have assumed when thinking about the biblical concept of idolatry that idols are a bad thing, but that's almost never the case. Uh, what is so tricky about modern-day idols is that they often start out as good things, and because of that, we feel like they could satisfy our deepest needs. And so we take them and twist and elevate them to status they were never meant to have. So throughout this series, we've covered deep idols, the deep idols that drive behavior. And so we've looked at significance, control, and comfort. And this week, I'm going to be talking about greed. So let me start by reminding you of what a definition of idol is. According to Timothy Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he said this. He said, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. And anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And so here's three truths about idols. First, idols promise to fill a hole in us they can never fill. And idolatry is misplaced or displaced worship. And third, idols overpromise and they underdeliver in our lives. Now, when I was in high school, I got a job waiting tables, and it was a 24-hour restaurant. So I would start my weekend at 5 o'clock at night working from 5 to about 5 the next morning. And then I would do that both Friday and Saturday night, and then be back Sunday evening for the Sunday evening shift. So I put in 25-plus hours on the weekend alone, and that doesn't include my hours during the week. What started out as a chance to earn some cash and buy a car turned into this full-time job to support my desire for things. You see, once I had tasted a little spending money and the ability to buy whatever I want, the grips of greed took over with this ever-demanding promise to fill a hole in my heart. But what happened is that this workaholic behavior, driven by the desire for things to make me happy, drove me beyond my means and forced me into debt. You see, the idol of greed is very demanding. It never stopped requesting at the limit of my income, but increasingly demanded more and more with everything that I purchased. And so these things, once obtained, didn't provide the happiness they advertised. And that elusive promise of happiness still remained, which drove me relentlessly to find it. Idols overpromise and underdeliver, and they continually tighten their control of us. But you know what? I know I'm not the only one. God's people have always faced the temptation of bowing down to the idol of greed. Let me give you one iconic example from Israel's past. Israel is at Mount Sinai. Moses is up on the mountain meeting with God. And the people have been waiting a long time for him to return, and they're restless. And so they ask Aaron, the high priest, to fashion them a a god out of gold. So Aaron has them bring their gold earrings, and he fashions a golden calf out of them. Now, can I just mention that that is a lot of earrings? Isn't it interesting that this nation who's been a slave for 400 plus years has that much loot? And not only that, they want to take their slavery back pay, and create a life-size cow with it, probably something like the butter cow that we have in Des Moines. (laughs) And in this context, my mind just thinks this is ridiculous. Generation 
after generation after generation has been enslaved by the Egyptians. And the first thing they want to do is take their wealth and show other nations that they've arrived. And it's interesting that this golden calf probably resembled something you'd find in Egypt. It spoke of affluence, it was valuable, it was showy, and it was costly considering how it was earned. So up on the mountain, God sees what's going on, and he tells Moses that your people have become corrupted. So when Moses returns, he sees the the chaos in the camp, and this is what he does. He takes the golden calf, he grinds it up into a powder, He puts it in the Israelites' water source and makes them drink it. That is hilarious. Am I the only one who finds that extremely funny? He makes them drink it. It reminds me of a story in my own life. Once I was cooking pasta, and I guess the box of pasta was a little old because there was little bugs in it that started resurfacing during the boiling process. And I didn't have time to make something else because my husband was hovering around wondering when we were going to eat. So when he'd walk out of the room, I'm frantically trying to scoop these bugs out without him noticing. It was a somber dinner because not only was I eating bugs, I was feeding them to him and praying that he wasn't going to notice. He got caught, caught wind of this and he's been pretty suspicious all week. I cannot imagine how mad Moses must have been to grind up the golden calf and force feed it to the Israelites. He didn't even melt it down to save valuable gold. You know why? He wanted the idol of greed eradicated. Talk about a sour stomach when all of this was said and done. But how many of us have ulcers over our debt? And how many of us stay up at night dreaming about the next new thing to make us happy? And how many of us worry over our retirement plans and our savings accounts to the point of having high blood pressure? Idols are dangerous because they promise to fill a hole in us that only God can fill. And in return, they leave us with a miserable gut ache. Money or greed is the most common idol there is. And when it takes a hold of your heart, it blinds you to what is happening. And it starts controlling you through your anxieties and your lust. And it brings us to put it ahead of all other things. But let me be clear, because many here might be thinking, this isn't me. I'm not materialistic. But for Jesus, greed was not only the love of money, it was excessive anxiety about money. Jesus said greed was excessive anxiety over money. And some people use money to control their way of life. They live modestly, they don't spend much, and they save it all. They have it all safely saved and invested, so they feel in control. Or others, like me, use money and spend it on themselves in lavish ways. And others use it for power it gives them over other people. In every case, money functions as an idol. And yet, because of the deep idol of greed, it comes out in different patterns of behavior. Idolatry distorts our feelings. And just as idols are good things, turned into ultimate things, so the desires they generate become paralyzing and overwhelming. And when this idol fails, it leaves our lives devastated and in shambles. The idol of greed promises a lot of things and yet never once has delivered. 
But the Apostle Paul makes an insightful observation in the book of Romans, the beginning of Romans. Dave read this earlier, said, For all them they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or give thanks, and their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then a few verses later, it says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Remember, idolatry is misplaced or displaced worship. And when we use idols, it takes our focus and our worship off the one true God. And we exchange that truth for a lie and start worshiping things that are created instead of the creator himself. And Paul observed that this starts with ungratefulness. When we aren't thankful for God, then we don't glorify him as God. And when we do that, our focus shifts from him to something else. Isn't that interesting? Idols are dangerous because they force God out of his rightful place. It happened to the Israelites. Instead of focusing on how God had just delivered them from 400 plus years of slavery, they looked around at other nations and wanted to be like them to have showy golden gods, to show other people that they had arrived. But instead of finding what they were looking for, this false god continued to demand. It demanded and consumed all the gold they brought up with them from Egypt. And it demanded and consumed many of their lives as well, because in the end, Moses made them choose between that and God. Remember, idols over-promise and under-deliver. This happened to me. When I was enslaved to the idol of greed, working to support the demands of greed, I wanted to break free, but I was powerless to do it. Because the more I had, the more empty I felt. And the more empty I felt, the more I desired for contentment, which drove me to more things, looking for that elusive promise of happiness. It was a vicious cycle, and I wanted out, but I was powerless But that's the last thing that I want you to hear today is that this is a message to try harder, to try and topple the idols in your own life. Because let's face it, that's just setting ourselves up for failure. That's what I learned when I tried to break the power greed had in my life. This is what I did in my deepest struggle with materialism. I remember reading a verse from Hebrews, and this is what the verse says. It says, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content because God said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And I remember reading that verse and it hit me right here and I knew change was needed. So what I did is I wrote this verse on a piece of paper and I put it in my wallet so that every time I was shopping, I would have to confront this idea of being content And at first, it worked beautifully. I would see that verse, remind myself of this awesome promise that God says, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. And it would curb spending. But after a while, this verse just made me mad. Because I was not content. And eventually, my desire for things would trump those initial feelings of guilt. So eventually, I just removed the card from my wallet to skip those feelings of guilt. Has anyone ever been there? Like, it's just better to give up than to deal with the guilt. 
Nothing's wrong with the verse. Rather, it is a beautiful sentiment that God promises he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. But what it worked at first, what I did was merely based on externalism, what I could do to change. But what I found is that it was not the solution to the problem. Because we have to realize that idols simply cannot be removed. They have to be replaced. If you only uproot them, they will grow back. But we can topple the idols in our life by replacing them. And so I want to spend some time looking at an example from Jesus' life and what he reveals to be the only thing that can replace idols. Did you know that Jesus faced the very same temptations we do? And so we can look at his example of how he faced this and overcame temptation and now what he offers to help us in our own time of need. Immediately after Jesus was baptized, a voice from heaven came down and said, This is my son, whom I love, and with whom I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit sent Jesus out into the desert to undergo testing. And this is where I'm going to pick up this story. I'm going to read it to you out of Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest points of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, all their splendor. All of this, he said, I will give you if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. So Jesus is in the desert, sent by the Holy Spirit to undergo tempting. And the devil's there waiting for him. Have you ever felt like this? Like you're alone, wandering, restless, and like you're easy prey? Reminds me, uh, one time I was training for a triathlon, and I was at the end of this extremely long bike ride, and I kid you not, there was four turkey buzzards flying above my head. And I was thinking two things. They are preparing for an easy meal, and secondly, all I have to do is beat my husband home because he's going to be that meal. (laughs) Let me touch briefly on the first two temptations because they're a little similar. Each time Satan tempts Jesus, it's by asking Jesus to prove who he was. Now remember before this at Jesus' baptism, a voice from heaven comes down and says, This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. But some time has passed and circumstances have changed, so Satan tries to start questioning this idea. And what I find completely amazing is that Jesus combats Satan's temptation by finding himself in who God said he was, and that was enough. He didn't need to prove it. 
during these temptations, Jesus had to combat the, the belief system that says, I am what I do or what I have with what God said, who I am. So then the devil changes tactics for the third temptation. He takes Jesus up to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And then he offers him what is befitting for the son of God. All the kingdoms, all the splendor, all the riches. The condition of greed is that you bow down and worship. And this is how Jesus responds. And in this is where we find the solution to our answer, to our problem. Jesus answered, he said, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. An idol is, do you remember what their definition of an idol is? Is that anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God, and anything we seek to give us what only God can give. See, Jesus knew bowing to the idol of greed would only be temporary because idolatry is misplaced or displaced worship. And Jesus understood the true appropriation of worship, to worship God and serve him only. For Jesus, worshiping God was more important than owning all the kingdoms of the world because Jesus found contentment in these words. You are my son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. And so how many of us need to take this truth and apply it to our own lives. You're my son. You're my daughters whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. This is what I found to break the power greed had in my own life. In my early 30s, I went through a very hard time. I felt like my life was in shambles. I felt like I was also in the desert alone and wandering and restless and hungry. And because my home life, my church life, and my work life was a mess, there was no place of safety. <clears throat> However, it was during this time that I spent a whole year deeply studying the book of Romans, and I went line by line through the letter. And it combated so many things about God that I assumed or had learned growing up. But in the midst of it, I saw how deeply the God of the universe loves me and how there was absolutely nothing I did to earn this love or deserve it. And what I found in the space and time is that my heart responded to the God of the universe. I found myself thinking about him all the time. I found myself sharing what I was learning with friends. And I found myself writing down ideas and thoughts on each verse. But most of all, I found that I was just able to sit and be content without any desire or longing for something more. And years before, when I scribbled that verse on the piece of paper that said, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content because God said, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. I had absolutely no idea what that verse meant. But when I took the time to understand what the God of the universe means when he says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. 
It was in this truth that the idol of greed was toppled in my life and replaced with the one true God. What breaks the power money has over us is not a redoubled effort to follow in the example of Christ. Rather, it is deepening your understanding of the salvation of Christ and what you have in him and then living your life with the changes that that truth makes in your heart. How many of us need to rest in these words that you are my sons, you are my daughters, whom I love and with whom I am well? Well pleased. In that very same letter to Romans, the one that Apostle Paul wrote that changed my life, he wrote this. He said, The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. God sends his spirit into our hearts to cry, Abba, Father. Daddy, if you believe the gospel, then God's spirit will make God's love and blessing a reality in your heart. Have you heard God's blessing in your inmost being? Are these words that you're my son and my daughter whom I love and with whom I'm well pleased? An endless source of joy and strength. And have you sensed through the Holy Spirit God speaking them to you? This blessing is ours in Christ, and it is the only remedy against idolatry. Only in this blessing does it make idols unnecessary. And so here's the practical part. For those of us who are struggling with greed, who are in crushing debt, or obsessed with building a secure future, I want to offer that Jesus is willing and able to help you in the midst of your temptation. So in the midst of temptation, here's how to trust Jesus through it. First, admit the struggle. Admit you're powerless to overcome this idol and that you need help, which is always the starting point. But here's the promise in this. This is from the book of Hebrews. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize in our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet did not sin. Therefore, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. When you're struggling, when the desires of greed rear its ugly head, then approach God's throne of grace in confidence and ask him for help. Because Jesus was also faced with this temptation, you'll find his ability to rescue you in the midst of it. You'll find grace and mercy if you just admit it and come to him for help. Secondly, identify the lie. Remember, idols promise to fill a hole in us that they can never fill. So what is the lie we're believing? Are we looking to money to bring us happiness, for contentment, for fulfillment in life? Identify this belief as a lie. Recognize it can never and will never do it. And sometimes we just need to verbalize this to ourselves to recognize the absurdity of it. So identify this belief as a lie. Next, replace that belief with the truth. Jesus combated Satan's temptation in finding out what God said about him, and that was enough. Replace the belief that I am what I have or what I do with the idea that you're God's beloved sons and daughters, and he's pleased with you. Find your value in what God says about you. 
And this might look like a simple prayer. God, thanks for loving me. Help me to recognize that love today. And it might look like reciting a promise from Scripture, like I did when faced with the temptation. If God says he'll never leave you or never forsake you, then I say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. Lord, show me what it means to find contentment in you. Show me what it looks like. Help me live that way. And it might mean singing a worship song to yourself over and over and over and over and over until you start recognizing the truth. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. Lastly, most importantly, fix your eyes on Jesus. The book of Hebrews also says this. It says, because he himself suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts, fix your eyes on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. My dog knows how to do this. Whenever I'm eating ice cream, he fixes his eyes on me and does not look away. It's unnerving. His eyes follow my spoon because he knows I'm the only one able and willing to give it to him. This is what we need to do. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus so that he becomes more beautiful to our hearts, more beautiful to our imagination than anything we think we need. This simply means to appreciate, rejoice, and rest in what Jesus has done. So he just becomes the center and more attractive in our hearts than any of our idols. To fix our eyes on him is to rejoice in him, to treasure him, to assess his value, reflect on his beauty until our hearts rest and taste the sweetness of it and relaxes its grip on anything else. Remember, idols promise to fill a holiness that they can never fill and they overpromise and underdeliver. But Jesus will help us break the power greed has in our lives if we fix our eyes on him. And when this happens, it freezes up to be the generous people that he desires for his kingdom. Now I'm going to invite Dave to come and lead us in communion, but I'm going to first pray. So pray with me. God, I just pray in this moment that your spirit just ministers to our heart. There's so many things in life that we feel like we need and we want And if we had them, then we would be like other people. And other people would look at us and envy us. And God, we're sorry for that. Help us to recognize how beautiful you are. Help us to find our value in you. Help us to understand what you mean when you say that we're your beloved sons and daughters and that you're pleased with us. Show us how to replace these idols by looking to you and focusing on you and you alone. God, thank you for coming and being our empathetic high priest. In Jesus' name, amen.